We're uh, back in Matthew uh, chapter 23 uh, this morning. Matthew 23 is a unique chapter, really, in perhaps all of Scripture. Jesus' strong denunciation of the spiritual leaders of Israel. We looked at verses 1 to 12 last time, and we'll pick it up in verse 13 today. There are many evils in the world today that Christians are rightly and greatly concerned about. It used to be that we really had a big problem with prayer being removed from the public school. We only wish that was the least of problems in public schools, amen? Now we are faced with a child being told at school that they can choose to change their gender. Gender identity and attempt to normalize homosexuality are great concerns of Christians today. This one included, standing before you. Other concerns in our day that are serious concerns include the new perspectives on social justice, open borders for immigration, and the marginalization of conservative voices and values by the greater media. But as important as these and many other concerns are, none of them pose as great a threat to Christianity as false teaching and false spiritual leaders. Those who pervert the truth, those who take God's word and twist it to mean something that it does not, who teach a false way, lead millions astray. And I don't mean that they lead them a little bit off. They lead them completely off the path to the broad road that leads to destruction. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ saves His most severe words in all the Gospels for chapter 23 as He denounces false spiritual leaders. In the strongest of terms, those who claim to speak for God but are in fact liars and hypocrites, in the strongest of terms, Jesus condemns them. And friends, where we're going to go today is not just to hear your pastor rant for the seven woes of the Pharisees. But the goal and desire of my heart is that you and I would grow in discernment. We have a need to be discerning Christians. I mentioned millions are led astray. Friends, millions of people under the banner of Christianity are led astray. And I'm not going to go in this morning to all the various false religions that claim to be Christian, but they are legion. We need to be discerning people. As I said, we're going to take a look at verses 13 to 33 this morning. In order to unpack this text, instead of reading it all the way through, what I'm going to do is just take it one of the seven woes as a time. Jesus pronounces seven woes or seven curses on unholy spiritual leaders. Also, I need to note before we start that verse 14, um, if it were included, would make eight woes. Verse 14 is not included. This is another reason you should have a Bible open right now. It is most likely a later scribal edition. Uh, it comes from Mark 12:40 and Luke 20 verse 47. So it is part of the biblical revelation, but we won't be covering it this morning here. And also, just a quick word about harsh words. Jesus' words about these false spiritual leaders are harsh and they are confrontational. Society's current values of intolerance make Jesus' words to be out of step with what is acceptable. Many would mark these words as unloving or even inconsistent with Christianity. But the truth is, Jesus' words are perfectly consistent with the rest of Scripture. As God reveals Himself to us in His character, as well as His 
commands, Old and New Testament alike. God, and you should know this, is especially angered by those who claim to represent him and distort the truth. Those who lead others astray, you remember Jesus' words, are ripe for having the millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the sea. In fact, God says, it'd be better if that happened to you than what's going to happen at the judgment. He is especially angered. And as I mentioned, Jesus is going to pronounce here, we'll outline the whole, in a moment, we'll outline the whole uh, passage under these seven woes. Woe is important that we, we make a few introductory comments on the word woe. It can mean alas, um, as though you're just, you know, kind of lamenting a loss, something not quite as serious, or it can be a statement of strong condemnation, as you've probably already gathered. It's being used that way here in our text, but it is in no way spiteful. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the Pharisees, but it is mingled with sorrow. Jesus takes no kind of morbid satisfaction with his displeasure being being explained in some kind of vindictive, malicious sort of way. No, he possesses the very nature of God himself. And, and, and God reveals to us in Ezekiel that he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And so when Jesus pronounces these woes, it's, it's kind of, to give you the historical context, he, he's leaving the temple area. This is it. He's been ministering in the temple for Passion Week. During Passion Week, you remember the first act was to cleanse it, chased out the money changers and made a whip and drove the animals out that they were selling in there. And then he came back and he's been teaching various lessons over and over. This is the last sermon on the temp- in the temple precincts. And it is laced with sorrow. Jesus pronounces these woes and of course he brings out very clearly that these religious leaders are hypocrites. That word comes from the Greek, which means acting on a stage. The scribes and Pharisees possessed a theatrical goodness, a pretended religious goodness that was for show rather than substance. And by pronouncing these seven woes against the religious leaders, he, by extension, also condemns to judgment all who follow in their steps. Every false purveyor of perverted and twisted Christianity. He condemns all such people as excluded from the kingdom. But don't miss, as we echo these to false teachers in our own day, don't miss that this is, this is mingled with sorrow. There is no spite, there is no malicious or vindictive attitude in Christ at all. So in verses 13 to 33, we will hear Jesus' severe condemnation of false spiritual leaders. They corrupted God's word and misrepresented God to his people. Instead of helping people find the entrance to heaven, they prevented people from entering. So now Jesus pronounces judgment upon these false spiritual leaders of Israel and all false religious leaders who will follow their example because they shut the door to heaven. They have a misguided zeal that damns and does not save. They are piously dishonest. They major on the minors. They polish the outward appearance while neglecting the inward condition. They are sources of defilement, and finally, they possess a pretentious superiority. And so we'll take a look at the seven woes of the scribes and the Pharisees, beginning in verse 13, if you'll look with me there. We will see that Jesus pronounces this judgment on these leaders because they shut the door to heaven. Verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in to enter. 
Luke records in the parallel passage in Luke 11, verse 52, that Jesus says, For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The religious leaders of Israel took away the key of knowledge by misrepresenting the Word of God. Here is the knowledge. And just to get into the first century sandals, they didn't carry their Bibles to the temple, right? It was all in a big scroll, and those were, those were special. Those weren't just handed out you know, on street corners by Bible societies. You had to come to hear the Word of God preached. So you were triply, you were, you were so rely, relying on the religious leaders to get the Word of God right and give it to you because you couldn't go check it yourself in most cases. And they misrepresented it. They take away the key of knowledge because they won't acknowledge no, no, they mis- not only do they misrepresent the word, but they won't acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. They deny their own need for repentance from the heart, and ultimately they deny salvation by grace. They damn the souls of men who are looking to them to show them the way to heaven by, by perverting and taking away the keys of knowledge. And, of course, this is the practice of every false spiritual leader, that they shut the door to heaven. In some way, some form, they prevent people from entering into the kingdom of heaven. A few things about false teachers. I just made a list this week as I was thinking this through, and I'll try not to, I'll try to keep it fairly brief here, but... Why, why is there an appeal? I mean, why do people follow them anyway, right? Well, they're often attractive, well-spoken, culturally relevant. Put an exclamation mark by that one. Intellectually stimulating. Maybe even they bring a resume. And even able to calm people's anxieties and emotions at times. But false teachers... Damn the souls of the listeners because they compromise at some point the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they, there is an appeal to them. And so much of that isn't attractive. I remember my dear friend who used to listen to a false teacher on television years and years ago. And I remember he said this. He said, that guy is so positive. I go away feeling so good after I've listened to his sermon. That was the man who was, it was a man rather, who was committed to the power of positive thinking. And so on Sunday morning, he just gave a power of positive thinking presentation with no gospel, no, no way to have your sins forgiven, no explanation that the, the, of the atoning death of Christ on the cross. He had great appeal. And often, secondly, false teachers teach a doctrine that often has a high moral standard. In fact, sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll put a, a big exclamation mark on holy living. They can give counsel to overcome practical problems. They can give helpful financial advice. They can genuinely help you improve your relationship with others and influence people. But their doctrine will not remove your sin or bring you into a right relationship with God. This is why they are popular. If you never confront sin, you remain a popular teacher. Because people don't like to be made to feel uncomfortable. So they promise you heaven but can only give you hell. And their methods are especially deceitful. They almost always have a Bible. They teach much of what the Bible says, but, it, when it, but twist its meaning and ultimately lead people away from the truth of the gospel of Christ and into some aberrant form of a false gospel. And this is almost always some combination of faith plus works. They nullify the gospel of grace. 
And so Jesus says, For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. How do they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? D.A. Carson said this, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees do not enter the kingdom because they refuse to recognize who Jesus is. That's the, you want the bottom line, get right down to it. They reject Christ. They reject Christ and they, and they instruct the people also to reject Him. It's the same today. People who are false religious leaders deny the deity of Christ. They deny the true Jesus of Scripture. And you must have the Jesus of Scripture in order to have your, tone, your sins atoned for so that you might enter into the presence of God. Don't turn there, but I'll just read it to you. Hebrews chapter 1. Just one of many, many verses we could talk about regarding the deity of Christ. The author of Hebrews begins his epistle by saying, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you jot that down, Hebrews 1, 1 1-3, meditate on it later. You might just remember that only one is the radiance of the glory of God. God shares his glory with none other. But Jesus is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jamie mentioned the Trinity earlier, that it's a divine mystery. God has revealed to us much about Himself, although there is an element of mystery to it for sure, but it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, one nature, one essence, three persons. Jesus is the very nature of God. That is what He possesses. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Does that speak to anyone but God? Who upholds the universe by the word of his power? Not a lesser God, not someone created. It is God himself. Jesus is God in the flesh. And after he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand of the majesty on high is the place of the place of ruling. Who rules? God rules. God does not share his throne with anyone. The importance of this cannot be overstated. They shut the door to heaven because they deny Jesus Christ. In Jesus' own words in John 8, 24, I told you, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to enter into heaven. The second woe, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the leaders of Israel because, secondly, they have a misguided zeal that damns and does not save. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is strong language. The, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, were to be a blessing to the whole world. This is what God, when he made his covenant with Abraham, promised Abraham that he would be exactly that. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They were to be a light to the, to the Gentile nations. Isaiah 49, verse 6. And in Exodus 19, 6, the Lord tells his people that he wants to make them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What does a priest do? A priest is the one who who brings you into the presence of God, mediates between you and the Lord. That's why Jesus is our high priest. That's why we don't have priests on earth anymore, because now we come directly to God through the Son. But this is who Israel was to be. Their purpose was to reach the world for Yahweh, for God. And so it's interesting that historical scholarship testifies that during the time of Christ, even just before the time of Christ, and up until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the Pharisees were very busy about proselytizing. 
They traveled far and wide to make converts. A proselyte was one who had been circumcised and who had uh, pledged to submit to the full rigors of Jewish law, including the massive oral tradition of the Pharisees. Again, D.A. Carson uh, notes that it was not that they went out and made many converts to Judaism, but Jesus is referring to specifically this sect of Judaism, the Pharisees, who went out and were, were focused on making other Pharisees. That's the context of Jesus' words. These proselytes only knew the teaching of the Pharisees. And so, as a result, they became, Jesus says, twice as much a child of hell. Because they were indoctrinated by the Pharisees, they started down the wrong road and they had no off-ramp. And so they had a misguided zeal, and that zeal for making these proselytes, and oftentimes only a single one after much effort, actually damned the soul instead of saving it. What could we say for application? Misguided zeal. Christians, I noted some very important things going on in our world, our country, in the introduction, but friends, we can have misguided zeal. We can be committed to many causes and be zealous for many things, some of them important, some not so important, but we need to keep before us always that Christ has called us to a specific mission. And just as in the military, when you're deployed on mission, you don't deviate. At least that's what they tell me. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19, that's our mission. You know it, it's been given to you. We have been given orders by the Lord as his servants to go and make disciples. Our zeal, our zealousness needs to be gospel zeal. That we see all people as either in Christ or outside of Christ and perishing. Jesus said you're either going through the narrow gate or you're on the broad road that leads to destruction. That's the Christian zeal that I pray for all of us to have. We be zealous for the gospel. Can you be involved in other things? Absolutely. You should be salt and light in all those areas where the Lord has put you. Every place that you have that opportunity, speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been given the great privilege in this country to vote. You ought to vote. But that's not our mission. Our mission is the gospel. So may we be zealous, but may we not have misguided zeal as the Pharisees who traveled far and wide to make a single proselyte but then they made him a son of hell. Thirdly, Jesus denounces, pronounces judgment upon the leaders of Israel because they are piously dishonest. Look with me there in your Bible at verse 16. And I'm going to read from verse 16 on this third woe all the way down to verse 22. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus calls them here in this third woe, blind guides, blind fools, blind men. He has already called the Pharisees blind and warned that if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch, and that is perish. Here he gives a specific example of the Pharisees' blindness regarding the swearing of oaths. 
Swearing of oaths was common among the Jews. They were given to making distinctions between their oaths. Depending on by what you swore, your oath could be binding or not so much. And so Jesus gives some examples of this practice, the temple versus the gold of the temple. They felt that by swearing by the temple, they were not bound to keep that promise somehow. But if they swore by the gold on the temple, then it was binding. And Jesus says, this is foolishness. It's outrageous to think that God will not take seriously an oath sworn by the temple, but will if it was sworn by the gold of the temple. The distinction is kind of boggles the mind. The gold would have been only special because it was on the temple. It would be the temple, the dwelling place of God that sanctified it. The same with the altar versus the gift. The, their blindness is further revealed by elevating the gift given on the altar over the importance of the altar that actually sanctifies the gift. And so he says, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. The temple is only the temple because God is worshipped there. If God is not there, the temple is no temple at all. That's what makes a temple a temple, is that God's presence is in it. So you cannot make a distinction between an oath sworn by the temple and an oath sworn by God. And he said in verse 22, whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who, who sits upon it. The reasoning here is the same. People will not dodge accountability for their oaths because they avoided certain specific words. If you swear by heaven, you are bound by the God who sits enthroned in heaven. And what this really is, is I, as I was just studying this this, this past week, is childish. It, it has no reverence for God at all it's some kind of a tradition like when when we were children and we made a promise and then we broke that promise and said ah but I had my fingers crossed behind my back so I'm morally released from the obligation to that oath I took for you we didn't articulate it quite like that but that's what we meant right I crossed my fingers when I made that promise so by this type of reasoning, the Jews dismiss their moral obligation to keep their promises. This is the real travesty here. They had come up with a system that systematically allowed them to lie. Turn back with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. We'll take just a moment here as we consider some application of this, of this pious dishonesty. Jesus, I think, clears it up for us here rather nicely in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, the point here is I don't believe we should read Jesus' words as being overly concerned with oaths and swearing. That's what was going on in the context, which is why I believe he unpacks that so much. I don't believe that's the point, though. The point is that Jesus' disciples are always to tell the truth in such a manner that no oath swearing is ever necessary. You are known as a person who only and ever speaks the truth. I don't believe that this prohibits you from swearing uh, loyalty in the Pledge of Allegiance or in a court of law, swearing that you're going to tell the truth to people that don't know you and know your character. Um, you might disagree with that. That's okay. But the main point is honesty in all your words before the Lord. What level of honesty does God require? 
Let me read it to you from Psalm 51. I'm sorry, Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, the psalmist is asking rhetorically, who will come into the presence of God? Who is that person? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. David says very clearly that the hard intention, as well as the words that express it, are the concern of God. We are called to be honest at the heart level. The intention of the heart, the words are the fruit of the heart's meditations. And just in case you need more, you know, pointed teaching from the Lord, he says in Revelation 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if you're really struggling at this moment, let me encourage you. Lying is not the unforgivable sin. Confess that lie you told yesterday and repent of it. And don't make a practice of lying. Can I get an amen? Pray to the Lord. Repent in your heart. Turn to the Lord and commit to be truthful from the very heart in everything you not only say, but everything you intend. No compromise. Truth and truthfulness is what the Lord requires of us. But the Pharisees were piously dishonest by this childish scheme of oath-taking. Some were binding, some were not. Jesus says, the truth is, everything you say is binding. His fourth woe. Fourth woe, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the leaders of Israel because they major on the minors. Verses 23 and 24, look there with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He makes mention of their tithe. A tithe is one-tenth. The Old Testament prescribed that Israel were to tithe to the Lord. They were to give one-tenth of their income, of their produce. This is how the priests were supported. And just as an aside, there are, for the nation of Israel, there are actually three tithes that are described, not just one. It was for the running of the nation. One of those tithes is described in Numbers 18. Uh, In the New Testament practice, just to to quickly clarify, is a free will offering. Uh, God loves a cheerful giver. You're not required to give a tithe, but if you would like to tithe 33 and a third percent of your income, we can have an appointment with our treasurer and he'll get that set up for you, no problem. Um, But there is no legalistic tithing in the New Testament. This was a requirement for the nation of Israel. Nevertheless, um, tithing was, was going on in the time of Christ, as it should have been. And then the Pharisees took this very seriously, tithing in minute detail, even counting out the grains of their spices. In their minds, not the smallest plant was even to be overlooked. And interestingly, Jesus does not condemn them for paying scrupulous attention to the tithing of their spices. He says, verse 23, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He condemns them for neglecting that which was far and away much more important, the weightier matters. Justice, love, mercy, faithfulness. This is the basic failure of the religious leaders. They neglected the weightier matters of the law. The weightier matters were not if you tithe a tenth of your dill, but that you practice justice and mercy and faithfulness. They were not condemned for their exacting religious observance, but for what they left out, love and mercy. He says, you blind guide, strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
straining out a gnat was a gnat was an unclean insect. So they were so scrupulous in their attention to the law, they didn't want to put an unclean insect in their, in their system. To strain meant that everything they drank, every time they had wine, or even water for that matter, it was strained through a, a, a type of gauze cloth into a cup that obviously had been previously inspected so that they would not ingest a bug. They concerned themselves with avoiding the smallest defilement. But Jesus said, you are so glaringly blind to spiritual truth, it's as though you gulped down a camel. You miss this by such a wide margin. You miss field goal if you're watching the playoffs. You know, this that one that just goes that way. Doesn't even go close to the goalpost. Jesus said, you are so far off. You are swallowing the largest of unclean animals. You are majoring on the minors. Love for other people, showing them mercy, making sure that justice happened, was of little concern to them. It was insignificant in their eyes. And Jesus says, that's what you should be majoring on, not the latter. And if we were to pull over and make some application, Christians can major on the minors as well. We can commit the same sin of the Pharisees if we neglect love and mercy and justice, failing to treat people with equity. Anytime, friends, we lack grace. We are the re- who are Christians? We are the recipients of grace. Grace upon grace, the Apostle Paul says. Grace that we can't even begin to measure. And every time we are graceless, we stand condemned with the Pharisees. Every time we withhold kindness, we are living just like the world. So let us endeavor, if we make some application here on this fourth point of not majoring on the minors, let us endeavor not to neglect the weightier matters of walking in the Spirit and showing Christ-like love and grace to all people, whether we feel they deserve it or not, as recipients of undeserved grace. Jesus pronounces judgment upon the leaders of Israel Fifthly, because they polish the outward appearance. Verses 25 and 26, look there with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. The cup refers to just an ordinary drinking vessel. The plate was that which food was served on. The Pharisees were meticulous with outward religious observance. They focused on appearance, how, they, how others perceived them. They concentrated on things that people could see and be impressed by. They convinced others by their outward appearance that they were indeed holy. That was at least their goal. But despite what people may have been impressed by, their hearts were not right. Jesus said they were filled with greed and self-centeredness. The Greek word for greed here can also be translated robbery. They robbed from those they were supposed to be serving and spent it on their own self-indulgent comforts. As a quick aside, just always be cautious and little skeptical when you meet people in the ministry who love luxury items, kind of exude luxury. This is what the Pharisees loved. They loved the praises of men and they loved the comforts of the world. False religious leaders not only prevent their followers from entering the kingdom, but they also fleece the flock. They are some of the most outrageous false teachers under the banner of Christianity are some of the most wealthiest people. They are worldly, and so they love money, and they love the things that money can buy. Jesus makes reference to the inside of the cup. And 
This almost goes without saying. You know where I'm going here. You know what that means. You know that the inside is where we are called to have a pure heart, called to love God with all of our heart and to purify our hearts. But I believe here it's not a call for the Pharisees to holiness in the sense of they need to do a little better. It's a total new transformation of the inside that they need. They are blind because they fail to come to Jesus the Messiah for the new life that only He can give. So their inside is corrupted, it is darkened, it is without spiritual life, and it will remain that way until they repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ, till they confess that Jesus is Lord, that He is, he is truly the Messiah. If they would forsake their concern with outward appearance and confess that Jesus is the Christ and come to Him for the cleansing, then their inside would be made clean because it would be made totally new. They would be born again. And then they would fulfill what Christ has just condemned them for not doing. They would be able to show genuine justice and mercy and love and faithfulness. But as it is, they lack the inner character qualities because they have not come to Christ in faith. And that's the same for us. You can play Christian. You can put on the outward garments of Christianity, so to speak. You can learn the vocabulary. But if the inside isn't changed by Christ, it'll eventually show itself. You'll eventually burp it up as unregenerate, as someone who is in great need, as someone who can't contain their anger, as someone who can't speak words of grace, as someone who is unable to show mercy and patience to others. That will eventually come out. Jesus pronounces judgment on them because they polish the outward appearance but inside they remain unregenerate, devoid of the Holy Spirit. Jesus pronounces judgment upon the leaders of Israel. Sixthly, number six, the sixth woe, because they are sources of defilement. Verses 27 and 28, look there with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Just before the Passover in the month of Adar, which would correspond with our month of March, Israel would prepare, Jerusalem especially, would prepare for visitors to come. And as we've been learning in in Matthew at the Passover, tens of thousands of people descend on Jerusalem. Over the centuries, around, in and around Jerusalem, when people die, they were buried in cemeteries and outside of cemeteries. And they wanted to be close to the temple when they were buried. So many, many, many tombs all around the city. Well, according to Numbers 19, if you touch a grave, you'd be ceremonial unclean for seven days. So you can just imagine... Say you're coming down from Galilee and you're making the long trek by foot. Maybe you have a donkey to carry some of your provisions and you've got little kids. And you go all the way down there and you get to Jerusalem. Finally, we're here. We're going to celebrate the Passover and you lean your hand on something to rest and it's a dead person's grave. You're like, oh, now I can't worship for seven days. I'm seven days unclean. Come on, kids, we're going home. Uh, so to avoid that, they whitewashed the tombs. So they brilliantly shined in the, in the sunshine, especially around the time of Passover. Jesus condemns them as hypocrites. We've already noted this several times. The religious leaders were ultimately hypocrites. They put on an outward display of righteousness that is a false righteousness, while internally they were spiritually dead and corrupt. 
just like the brightly painted whitewashed tomb that appeared beautiful on the outside as it's shown in the, in the sun, as the sun set on Jerusalem, but inside they were full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. But I don't think Jesus is making the same point here that he just made about cleaning the inside of the cup. I believe what he's talking about is that they have a defiling effect on others. Just as the pilgrim who unknowingly comes and touches a tomb in Jerusalem and then is ceremonially unclean and can't worship during Passover week, so they are like whitewashed tombs that anyone who comes within their orbit becomes defiled spiritually because of their rejection of Christ because of their false spiritual teaching. As the tombs ceremonially defied those who touched them, so the Pharisees, in an exceedingly worse way, defiled and even damned the people who came in close contact with them. Instead of leading them to eternal life in the one true God, they led them into uncleanness and defilement by their false hypocritical religion. And so they were sources of defilement. And lastly, the last woe, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the leaders of Israel because they possess a pretentious superiority. Look there with me at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The last woe concerns the Pharisees' attitude toward the great prophets of the past. These outwardly godly people honored the memory of the prophets but continued in their sins that the prophets denounced. And they erected monuments to the prophets. They took great satisfaction in building these memorials around Jerusalem. It was a way for them to feel morally and spiritually superior to their forefathers, who had, in fact, put the prophets to death. And they even openly proclaimed their moral superiority. They believed that they would have never treated God's messengers with anything but admiration and respect. They certainly would never have persecuted them or taken part in violent action against them. And Jesus says they witness against themselves. Jesus denies their claim. Their own words testify against them. They acknowledge that they are the descendants of those who did kill the prophets. Verse 31, he says, Thus you witness against yourselves, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You're their sons. You're their physical descendants, is what the Pharisees are thinking. Jesus, I believe here, means that they are the sons in the sense of their fathers and that they, they resemble them. There is a family likeness. It is seen by the fact that they have already plotted to put Jesus to death. Matthew 12, quite some time ago in our study, verse 14 of Matthew 12 says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. These are the godly holy men. Let's go make a plan as how to murder that guy. That's what they plotted. Yes, they bear a striking family resemblance to their fathers. Jesus says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. The idea here is that God can only tolerate so much sin. His grace and mercy are rich, but they also have a limit. When the measure is full, then righteous judgment is coming, and he will respond with wrath. They speak highly of themselves and their motives, but they are pretentious, insincere, and they are currently plotting the murder of the Son of God. For a closing reflection, where we began with discernment. 
Jesus speaking to these people, we have to be careful. When Jesus is speaking all these words in the temple for the whole week, really, the people, if we could get into their sandals, the people, the average people listening to Jesus don't think poorly of the Pharisees. This is news to them. To a large degree. Maybe not entirely, but to a large degree. These are their spiritual leaders. These are the people that are very holy as far as they can tell. The Sadducees would not associate with the common people. The Pharisees did. They condescended to hang out with the common people. Now, we, we know they drew limits. We know that when Jesus ate with the friends of Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, that they condemned him for eating with tax collectors and known sinners. But by and large, the Pharisees were the people's rabbis. They looked up to them. They esteemed them. And Jesus is basically saying what? They are shutting the kingdom of heaven in your face. If you live like them, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in John 8. And I'm just going to share one word. I was going to read the whole thing, but for the sake of time, he says very clearly to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. John 8, 44. False spiritual leaders, friends, are not of God. They might say some things that are a practical help. They might, they might live in such a way that causes you to somehow admire them or, or long for what they have. But the eternal consequences of following such people is disastrous. Why? Because they promise heaven, but they can only deliver hell. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 13, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. May we have discernment. And friends, that discernment will only come from giving heed to God's word, knowing God, walking with God, and spending time knowing him in his word. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us the answers. More than the answers, Lord, you have drawn us into relationship with yourself that we might know the truth and the truth would set us free. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would take heed to you and to your word, that they would grow in the knowledge of you and as a result of that, grow in Christ-likeness in such a way that they would know you, the true and living God, and they would know the truth of your word. And it would be a protection for them. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us all we need in Christ. May we take heed to your word and may you dwell, Lord, in us. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.